In Mark chapter 15, verse 18, it says, And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Today, the Roman soldiers think that they're being really ironic. And they aren't. Well, not in the way they think that they are. This is day 19. Welcome to the Journey Through Mark podcast, where every day we set aside space in our lives to experience God's Word. Together, we'll discuss the context and meaning of each passage and how the book of Mark can help us understand more about who God is and the story He's writing for each of us every day. Welcome to day 19 of the Journey Through Mark podcast. We are rolling right into it. Second to last day of the Journey Through Mark. How are you guys doing? Hanging in there. Still here. We've got a really heavy day today, but to liven it up just a little bit to start out, my question is, what's your favorite board game? I think as a kid, I loved the game of life. Really? Yes. And what changed? I- <laughs> <laughs> Real life happened. <laughs> yeah, that's not so fun now, is it? Look at this prescriptive <laughs> description of how life should be. Like if you win, right? you... Well, the game doesn't the go American always dream. as you would like either. That's, that's what true. makes it true. But I think I loved it because I would play it with my aunt and uncle when we stayed with them. And it was just the longest game ever. Never went to bed. <laughs> I, How like, do you win the game of life? I don't even know. Well, you know I think what? I you're think you're just trying probably, to get to the end. It's probably just like real life. It's probably just subjective. There you right. go. You play um, until you can't play anymore. Brendan, how about you? What's your favorite board game? Well, right now it's Coup because that's the one I've played most recently. Mm, that's you a played good one. what? Coup, which is actually pretty fitting now that I think about what we're talking about like yes. Romans and <laughs> <laughs> I've never played Deceiving Coup. Deceiving one You've never played Coup? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Wait, Clue? No, n- not Clue. <laughs> Coup. <laughs> What is that? C O U P? Is that right? Yeah. It's like coup, yeah, yeah, yeah. but like coup d'etat. Coup. Yeah. You have these cards and you try to take people out and try to get to the end. I don't know. Tyler, I think you would actually be really good at it. What are you saying, Melissa? <laughs> you just have to kind of be okay with like lying to people. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Or well, this just, feels like an attack. I feel like this no, is no, a, no, no. a just, planned effort among all of you. <laughs> hey, coup, Tyler, you take will. down the host. <laughs> We've been meaning to confront you about this. Um, you're a terrible liar, and we all know that you're doing it. No, I think you'd be good at it, actually. How about well, you, Tyler? I don't know if that's worse or better. You know what? I'm really good at Monopoly, and I don't know why. Do you play like, that with your kids? Every, no, they would not get it. And everybody <laughs> I play it with gets really mad, like really angry. Like all of my family, they get so mad. And everybody's like, oh, it's such a long game. No, it isn't. No, it's, when it is be- when you play with people like you who make it long, and that's what, probably why they're mad at you. No, that's the you're, thing. You're when thinking you over me, game over very quickly, all right? Wait, this do you not have a long strategy game. behind how you play? I mean, I have multiple strategies about how I play that game. It depends on what happens, you know? Interesting. Well, Brendan, I assume when you came up with the board game question, you weren't making a terrible pun about the cross or something, but it probably has something to do with the soldiers gambling in here. But to find out what you really meant by this question, why don't you take us through our commentary for today? Day 19, the agony and irony of the cross. Today's reading tells the account of Jesus's crucifixion. As we read the story, we shouldn't miss the agony Jesus would have endured as he died on the cross. Our familiarity with images of the cross can numb us to the brutality of Jesus' death. The reality is that it was likely much worse than we imagine. Roman crucifixion was an excruciatingly slow, public, and humiliating form of execution. Victims often experienced some form of torture beforehand like flogging. After being tortured, they were stripped naked so to bring shame. 
Then they were nailed to wooden posts where they slowly and painfully suffocated as their lungs were crushed under their own body weight. This torturous style of execution was used as psychological warfare to discourage potential rebels. It was considered so barbaric that the word crucified became an expletive in Roman society. It's no wonder Jesus prayed from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? While we should never forget the agony Jesus experienced on the cross, we also shouldn't miss the dramatic and deliberate irony in this story. While Jesus was on the cross, religious leaders mocked him, saying, He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. The irony of this group's misunderstanding is that the cross was the place where Jesus became their Messiah. Saving others meant he couldn't save himself. In the same way, before his crucifixion, Jesus is led to a palace where he is dressed in a purple robe, given a crown, and hailed as king. This triumphant imitation of victorious Roman emperors was intended by Jesus' executioners to be a form of mockery. But as the book of Mark has prepared us to see, Jesus' execution is also the moment of his enthronement and ultimate triumph over evil. This is the moment when Jesus becomes king. The story of the cross is, therefore, a story of agony and irony. The cross was meant to bring torture. God used it to bring triumph. You may respond to this story with tears, guilt, or gratitude, but what Jesus deserves most is our allegiance, for us to hail him as our Messiah King. For day 19, we're reading Mark chapter 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. 
those crucified with him also heaped insults at him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood in front of Jesus saw how he had died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, and wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Melissa, you want to take us through our discussion questions for day 19? First question. In Mark 15, 34, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words come from Psalm 22, a psalm of lament. By quoting this psalm, Jesus showed that he felt let down by God, just as many worshipers before and after him have felt. When have you felt abandoned by God? How might Jesus' words be an encouragement to you? Second question. It can be easy for us to cast judgment on the various characters who appear in the stories of Jesus' arrest, trials, and crucifixion. It is more difficult, but perhaps more important, that we consider how we might have fit into the story. When have you acted like Peter denying Jesus? Like an onlooker insulting Jesus? Like Pilate caving to pressure and condemning Jesus? You know, it's kind of weird that these guys are like casting lots and bartering a little bit to divide up Jesus's clothes. Was this like a normal thing? Like, why do they want his clothes? The best answer I can think of right now, I haven't really studied this much, <laughs> is that clothes were of value at that time. I mean, if you're one of these guys crucifying people, you're not an elite soldier making lots of money. So this stuff is valuable. And so I think, kinda. yeah, exactly. So my hunch is that these are possessions worth taking. And so that's what they do. They scramble and pick up the few possessions he has left. The other thing I'd point out is Melissa just read this question that talks about how Jesus quotes Psalm 22, but there are a couple other places in this story of Jesus' crucifixion where things that he experiences like being mocked, being insulted, people casting lots over him. These are things that Psalm 22 also talks about. So it shows how, again, how he fulfills the picture of the Psalm of Lament. 
Well, and this happens after this trial, the crucifixion, everything that goes on with Pilate and the chief priests and all this stuff. It all happens very quickly. Mm -hmm. Can you talk us through, like, what is this trial? Because it doesn't seem very legit in any way. They just It was kind of like, whoever has the loudest voice wins. And we'll just keep saying the same thing over and over again. If we yell loud enough for long enough, we'll get our way. What really happens that leads to his crucifixion here? Let's just step back and think about what's going on here. He's in Jerusalem for the Passover. He understands what his purpose is, but the people who are around him, the crowds who've welcomed him, who've embraced him, they're expecting Jesus to come into town. And If he's going to be a Messiah, the type of Messiah they want, they want him to be this military leader, and they sort of welcome him like that. Well, when news starts to catch winds to others about who he is, some of the things he's been claiming, Jewish leaders in particular, who Jesus has been you know, indicting, he called out specifically the temple leaders for rejecting him, for not welcoming him. And they knew this very clearly. They saw this as an opportunity to sort of get Jesus in trouble, to get rid of Jesus because- Almost politically like motivated. They're like, this is our chance to like get rid of this guy because I like my cushy lifestyle and I want to keep it. Exactly. So the thing we have to recognize about the people that Jesus is put on trial before he goes to Pilate, these are people who they really don't want a military leader, a military messiah. They see this as an opportunity to take him down. They've got a good life in the temple. They don't want to lose sort of their position of power there. So you have these religious leaders who see an opportunity to get him in trouble with Pilate. It's really a sham trial, kind of as you pointed out. The things they accuse him of, some of these things he never actually even says in the book of Mark, but they finally pin on him this accusation of blasphemy where the high priest says, are you the son of the blessed one? This is Mark chapter 14 near the end of the chapter. He says, I am, and you will see the son of man coming with power and sitting at the right hand of the father. This is Jesus's first and most explicit statement about his divinity in the book of Mark. So they take him too. (laughs) It is. It's super powerful. I mean, that's like, I mean, if you want to come out, that's a way to do it, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And he knows exactly what they're trying to do. And he also knows the end he's going to, and he knows this is the sort of thing that's going to get him there. And he also wants to make sure that they understand exactly who he is, what they are doing. When they are condemning him, they're condemning the true son of God. So Jesus makes that claim. They take him to Pilate because they actually don't have the authority to kill Jesus because the Romans had power over them. They had jurisdiction. Only the Romans could execute people. So they take him to Pilate and Pilate tries him, realizes, you know what, this guy, he's not really the threat that they say he is. And he actually offers to trade him up with this guy named Barabbas. The crowds who are stirred up by the chief priests, they say, we want you to crucify Jesus. And so he does. He's mocked. He's led by soldiers to the cross. And eventually he's crucified right there. Well, this is the crazy thing to me. You know, the chief priests stir up the crowd and they're like, Pilate, you should release Barabbas. And then Pilate's like, well, what do you want me to do with Jesus over here? What do you want me to do? And they're like, crucify him. And he's like, what has he done that he, like would require? Like this guy I just released, he's a murderer. Like that makes sense. Why would this guy like, and they just start shouting it louder and louder. And that's like what leads to it basically. It's almost like he's giving them a chance. Like, wait, are you sure? This guy, maybe, maybe he should go, you know? Like, does he really need to stay here? And so it's interesting that they continue to shout. Yeah, and it's also interesting that he kind of goes through with it too. Like, he recognizes there's nothing this guy has really done wrong. I mean, he may have claimed to be king of the Jews, but he doesn't really see evidence of this. And certainly he doesn't come across as a threat to Roman imperial power, at least the way he perceives it. But in a lot of ways, he's just like Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas had an opportunity to not go through with the execution 
resurrection of John the Baptist, but he caved to peer pressure. And this is exactly what's said about Pilate. It says in verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So here's a political leader who just wants to satisfy a crowd and decides to condemn an innocent man. Well, and they call him the king of the Jews, like you just said. And it's funny because the soldiers are the ones who are like calling him that and sort of ridiculing him throughout every step of this process. Mm -hmm. And you said that there's a lot of irony. That's like kind of the title for today too. And I said it on the intro, Yep. the soldiers and everything that's happening is very ironic. Why is this so ironic? What happens from the beginning to end? Yeah. So the whole book of Mark in a lot of ways is ironic because again, think about how the book begins. It's a proclamation, good news about Jesus, the son of God, the Messiah. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and he proclaims the arrival of the kingdom of God. And this is good news for people who feel like they're living in exile, people who feel like they don't have their own liberty in their own land. And Jesus proceeds to reveal that the kingdom has come near, but this kingdom doesn't look like the kingdom they expected. And as we discover throughout the book of Mark, he's not the type of king that people expected either. What Mark wants us to see is that the way Jesus becomes king, the way he establishes victory, the way he liberates captives is through his death on a cross. And so this whole chapter, again, emphasizes just how truly ironic this whole situation is. And we highlighted a few in the commentary. I don't need to rehash those, but there are a few others I just want to point out that I think are so interesting. So you think about Simon Peter, the guy who in the very last chapter, he's with Jesus praying, Three times he falls asleep. Jesus says, pray so you don't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Well, Peter, in his own moment of trial, his own moment where he's accused, just like Jesus is accused, he denies Jesus three times and he fails to express his allegiance to Jesus at the most critical moment. Fast forward to this story now, this chapter, we see a person named Simon carrying a cross. But it's not. I just assume there's a lot of people named Simon. <laughs> there's just a lot of Simons walking around all the time. There are. I mean, there, there are a number of Simons, but I mean, there's a reason why they named this guy. Probably are a few different reasons. But what we can't miss is that this would have been Peter's opportunity to be right there with Jesus, to carry his mm-hmm. cross. And eventually Peter does. Simon Peter does carry that cross in Rome where he's crucified upside down. But here it's a different Simon who's carrying the cross, who's living out that vision of what it looks like to be a disciple. Whoever wants to be my disciple, Mark 8, 34, must deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow me. We also talk about Jesus and Barabbas. The whole book of Mark makes this claim that Jesus is the son of God, the son of the father. Well, Barabbas, this is a name that in Aramaic literally means son of the father. So you have one guy, the son of God, the son of the father, who's executed in exchange for a different son of the father. One is an innocent man who dies an insurrectionist death. That's what crucifixion is. The other was a real insurrectionist who didn't die, who got to be freed as though he was an innocent person. So that's another- like a metaphor for what Jesus came to do for future people, future exactly. generations of people mm-hmm. who would commit wrongdoings. I mean, there are lots of theories and ways we talk about atonement and probably the most popular is substitutionary atonement. Well, this is actually in some ways to me kind of the best example of what that is and what that looks like. It's again, the one who's innocent dying in place or in exchange of the one who was condemned. That's what we see on the cross. And then we talked about this, but I just want to expand on it. The story is written like the story of Roman triumphs. Roman generals and later on Roman emperors around the time of Jesus and afterwards, when they had great military victories and things they wanted to celebrate, they would have these big parades essentially that they would throw in the city of Rome where they would march through the streets. They'd dress up in their purple garbs and be hailed. They'd offer sacrifices when they got to Capitoline Hill, which was where the temple to Jupiter 
was located. And what's fascinating is how many things in the story parallel those triumphs. So Jesus is met in a palace where he's dressed in purple. He's given a staff, which is similar to the scepters that emperors would carry. He's given a crown. In these Roman triumphs, oftentimes those who are being celebrated, their faces were painted red. Well, think about what that crown well, of thorns would red was the color of the gods, right? Yes. And they would like have dye just like hanging above these markets to drench these parades in red. That's one thing I do remember from Roman history is that's good. <laughs> that red was the color of the gods. So every parade, they would just have red everywhere, almost like the holy festivals in India where they throw color everywhere. Mm. Exactly. And so you have Jesus, he's given a crown just like those emperors, but it's a crown of thorns. And think what a crown of thorns does to your face. Yeah, the blood yeah. is going to run it down red. his face. Yeah. yeah, so he's painted red. He's hailed as king by these soldiers. It's a huge troop of soldiers, too. It says a whole company. The word that's used here typically refers to hundreds, which seems kind of crazy that you have hundreds of guys mocking Jesus. But the whole point is this is supposed to usher in the image of Roman triumphs, especially for people who lived in Rome and were hearing this gospel. And then he's led through the streets. He's brought to Golgotha, which is called the place of the skull, Capitoline Hill, Jupiter's temple. It's the head hill. That's what it means. The hill of the head. So similar place. Typically, when Roman victors would go to this place, a sacrifice of bulls was made. Here, a sacrifice is made. Wine was often offered to those guys, but they rejected it. Same thing with Jesus. And then at the end of these triumphant processions through the city, the emperors, the victors would appear with vice regents on their left and on their right. And that's what we see with Jesus when he's raised up on the cross with two criminals on his left and his right. And then it concludes with a stunning line in Mark 15, 39. Jesus dies in Mark 15, 37. We've talked about this. The curtain of the temple is torn in two in Mark 15, 38. And when the centurion, again, a Roman employee, someone who reports to works for Caesar, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. They believed at that time Caesar was the son of God. And now this is the first time in the book of Mark that a person claims that Jesus is the son of God. Again, it just emphasizes how crazy different of a king Jesus is from the Caesars, from anybody at this time. He's the true king of the world. He's the true son of God. But the way he claims victory for himself isn't through military battle like the emperors did. He won victory when he died on a cross. This is the point in the book of Mark where Jesus is officially enthroned as king. So that's way more complicated than what is in the text. Like obviously reading yeah. between the lines and knowing some of this history, like that is pretty profound and it shows the intention of the actual account for writing it like this. But what does it all mean? This trial going before Pilate into the crucifixion and Jesus dies and he cries out in his last breath. Yeah. So what? What actually just happened? What did we just witness? We just witnessed the victory of God. We just witnessed the enthronement of God. We just witnessed the inauguration of a brand new type of kingdom where it's not a military warrior establishing peace through the death of tens of thousands. It's the innocent son of God bringing peace to us through his own suffering and service on our behalf. It's as Isaiah 53 proclaims, the servant dying on behalf of the many. It's liberation from exile, from true exile, from sin that 
that's held us in bondage all of our lives. We've talked about the destruction of the temple and how Jesus confronted the temple system. And it's a lot of ways how Jesus stands in place of that temple himself. You know, where again, Mark 15, 38, after Jesus breathes his last, the curtain of the temple is torn in two. And the reason why those two go hand in hand is because Jesus is really the true temple. He stands in place of the temple. And when he is destroyed, the temple in a sense is destroyed. And so with his death, there's now a new way that people can have access to God. That old temple system, that old way of having connection with God, that's done away with. And now Jesus is our new and true temple. And finally, again, we have the son of God finally, clearly, and explicitly revealed. Throughout the whole book of Mark, we've talked about this messianic secret several times where people on multiple occasions kind of get a sense of who Jesus is, sort of this taste. And he says, don't tell anybody what you've seen, what you've heard. Don't tell anybody who I am. Well, this is the first time in the book of Mark where someone, where a human actually explicitly claims who Jesus is, who says he's the son of God, and it happens on the heels of his death. And it's because this is the point in the book of Mark where Jesus's messianic identity is most clearly revealed. When it's almost like just by being witness to this, there's something about Jesus and what he does here that makes it undeniable for people. You know, people who have eyes to see, they see what happened and this guy just says it. Yeah. And the irony, again, this is a Roman centurion. And I think the reason he does this is because there's a lot of things that sort of go hand in hand with his death. For instance, Mark 15 talks about how darkness covers the land. And again, we talk about how Jesus is the true temple. And in Mark 13, there's this prediction that, well, the stars will be dark and the symbolic language of political upheaval. Well, that's already sort of alluded to in the death of Jesus. You have darkness in the land, not stars literally falling from the sky, but you have sort of these portents that sort of stand out to this centurion. He sees everything that's happening. And when he sees this person finally give up his life in the way that he does, he can't help but conclude this is the real deal. This is really the son of God. You know, I feel like the three of us, we grew up in church circles. For a lot of people, they didn't. But for you guys growing up, what has the crucifixion, this story right here today, the death of Jesus, what has it meant to you? How have you thought about this whole story here? I think... Growing up, I knew that Jesus was the Son of God and that He loved me and He died on the cross for my sin. And it was a lot more of a simple, I think, faith when I was younger because I kind of just believed it because I was in a place where I knew I wanted someone to love me that much that they would die for me. I maybe didn't understand the whole picture that God was painting from the beginning of the Bible to the end, but I really just came to understand that if this man loved me so much and was willing to take on all the sin of the world, then I wanted to pledge my allegiance to him. I wanted to say, I am a Christian. I am a believer. And so I think when I was younger, that was kind of my view of the crucifixion. I think it was just always so intensely personal. I think that's how we tend to talk about it in American churches. And I don't think that that's completely wrong. I think we should see ourselves in the story. We should see ourselves as the executioners. We should see ourselves as the pilots, as the chief priests, as all these people who have played our own part in accusing Jesus falsely. But I just saw it as something that was kind of about me and him and what Jesus was doing for my sins. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I think both of your answers, that's probably similar to mine too. It seems growing up like overly simplified and people use this as like the gospel, mm -hmm. right? They're like, oh, Jesus came down and was perfect and they killed him anyways. He was raised from the dead so that you could go to heaven. And it's almost like mm. the oversimplification of this story. Mm -hmm. You lose a lot of the color of it and the reality of what he was doing. So for me growing up, you know, there's almost this point of, I don't want to call it like enlightenment, but maturity where you start to question and be like, okay, this story, it can't just be about Jesus died so that I can go to heaven. There's got to be something more to it. And so I guess my question out of that is, what have you learned that's different from what you previously thought as you've learned more about everything surrounding the crucifixion and how we've gotten here? How has your perspective changed? I think as I've grown in my faith and gotten older and understood more about the Bible as a whole from beginning to end, it makes me see the bigger picture. And I would say even just going through this journey through Mark's series, I have come to see things even more clearly that Jesus was very specific about the people that he chose to be with and to heal and to love and to walk with when he was on earth. And it's making me see and understand that Jesus is a Savior for all, the Jews and the Gentiles, those who are broken, those who are trying to live their lives right. And I think when I was younger, it was kind of like, if you know who Jesus is and you go to church, then Jesus died for you. But like understanding more and more that this salvation that he was bringing was to the whole world. And to see the detail that Mark uses in every story, it just has really opened my eyes to the whole plan of Jesus's ministry while he was here on earth up to this unexpected king that we got to see. How do you explain some of these complexities to students, Melissa? Yeah, I mean, it's really been amazing because we have been doing this Bible study with our high school students and their questions and the fact that they, even through quarantine, still want to meet on a Zoom call and, you know, read the Bible and discuss and ask deep, meaningful questions about what Mark is saying to the reader. And it's really been amazing. Sometimes we don't give students the credit that they deserve. You know, they are seeking and they are looking for it. Some of them are reading it for the first time, and some of them are reading it for the fifth or sixth or whatever. But it seems like just diving into it and walking through it, this theme of the unexpected king has really been the theme that we've talked about, that Jesus so carefully planned out what it was going to look like and when it was his time to actually tell everyone who he was. Brendan, how has your perspective changed as you're preparing this study, but also like doing this study alongside us all? I know you're very smart, but like, have you That's not <laughs> gained any new knowledge or perspective reading at this time? If I'm being totally candid, one of the things I'm learning is just like how much I still have to learn. You know what yeah. I mean? The book of Mark, again, we've talked about the artistry and the style, and it doesn't always get the same credit that the books of Luke and Matthew get for different reasons, and that's fine. But the way that some of these themes are woven together in the book, like I just missed them. I'm still missing them. <laughs> like I don't claim to see all of them. But the way that Mark has intricately done this to not just tell a story, but to present to us, again, this stunning, unexpected, mysterious depiction of what God was doing on earth through Jesus continues to blow my mind every time I get into it and study more. And that's one of the reasons why I love studying scriptures, because I know there's so much more for me to see and learn. Also, and this has been evolving for a number of years now, but it's become 
becomes so much more crystal clear, especially with the book of Mark, that our view of good news, that our view of the gospel is so limited. It is so Mm -hmm. weak. It doesn't tell the whole story. Yeah, it's fine that Jesus died for my sins, but Jesus was accomplishing more than just dying for my personal sins. Jesus was establishing a fundamentally different type of kingdom, and he's inviting me into that kingdom. That's why when Jesus says in Mark 1, 15, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. When Jesus says, this is the good news, that the kingdom of God has come near, I need to have a bigger picture of what the good news is and what Jesus was trying to accomplish on earth. And if Jesus is just dying for my sins and taking me to heaven after I die, then what's the point of the rest of my life, right? It's not really good news. I guess it's a good transaction. It's a good moment and I'll have good news in the future. But if it's good news for the here and now, if the kingdom has really been brought on earth, if it's been inaugurated and one day it's going to be fully consummated when the king returns, then that gives me purpose in life. That gives me hope in the midst of isolation. That gives me hope in the midst of quarantine. It gives me hope in the midst of seeing political powers abuse their authority. It gives me hope when I see disease ransacking the world because I know that I have a role now, that I have a part, that there's something I can do to help contribute to the kingdom of God. I've been liberated from my sins for a purpose, to join in helping establish that kingdom on earth. That's what I've been learning a lot as we've been reading through this book. Yeah, I think for me, it confronts this idea growing up that there's something transactional about this, that like mm-hmm. all I have to do is say yes, and then I get to go to heaven. Yeah. Well, that has been used for centuries to supplant and really keep people down in a certain place. Again, it's this gospel that heaven is this other place. And Mm -hmm. what Jesus is doing, he's bringing heaven here. If anything, it's not about us going to some other place. It's actually about Jesus coming, establishing it here, and it'll be fully consummated here. And again, it says that the plan Jesus has involves so much more than you and me as individuals. It involves the whole cosmos, this whole earth that we live on. And so again, it suggests the good news is much more expansive, way broader than what we've limited it to in the past. Well, what it does is it reclaims it from this idea of the good news and your reward being about what happens when you die. And it Mm -hmm. makes it more about life. It makes it more about how you live. And Jesus shows us how we should do that, right? That is so much more profound that I can do something today and receive the rewards today. And that's what Jesus shows us. This is something that can radically transform your life now. How do you do that? You kind of have to radically transform how you're living Mm. and follow in the way that Jesus did. Yeah, And that's easier said than done. But what it does mean is that it's going to be countercultural. It's going to be very different than the systems that have been established by the masses. And I think what Mark does is it allows us to look at those things that have been entrenched in our society, in our culture, in our Christianity, and look at those new and fresh. Because what God is doing at this time through Jesus is flipping the tables, literally. <laughs> and by having his son die on a cross in the most demeaning way that anybody on earth has come up with, it shows that this is going to be countercultural from beginning to end. And that's something that we're going to have to look at going forward is what systems have our churches put in place as a way to make this easier or more transactional that really isn't what Jesus was about. It allows us to look at our churches and think differently about what God might be doing. Because let's be real, this is day 19. And on day 20, something even more unexpected happens. And it is a focus on life and not on death. So I guess we'll find out what else God has in store for his kingdom starting tomorrow. Story's not done yet. Thanks for joining us for the Journey Through Mark podcast. If this is your first time, we're so glad you checked us out. 
check out even more resources, children and family resources, and ebooks for all ages, visit our journey page at willowjourney.org and share your journey experience on social media with the hashtag willowjourney. If you have questions or would like to learn more about the ministries of Willow Creek Community Church, check out willowcreek.org. We'll see you tomorrow.